Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Join us in our conversation today with Irma Rastegaeva. She's a health tech expert, innovator, and engineer. From creating 3D imagery back in the day, targeted cancer treatment, to working for Google, to founding TEDx Beacon Street. She has so much to share. So let's dive in. It, it feels like I'm ending up now where I had begun, and then it's been 20 plus years in between. <laughs> um, because uh, growing up, there was a lot of illness in my family, so I I think I never felt invincible as a child because I always saw others who were not invincible around me. So I think I was always sensitized to that um, experience of somebody who has health challenges. And, uh, you know, when I first came to this country, I was the only one in the family, whole extended family, who thought that (laughs) I spoke in, I thought (laughs) that I didn't speak any English, but it was better than them. So I... I had so many uh, opportunities to translate and take my family members to medical appointments. And so that was my very first introduction to the whole healthcare system without really knowing anything about the country as a new immigrant and and barely knowing any language and trying to navigate uh, uh, this, you know, helping family members with these complex medical issues that they've had. So um, so that, that first kind of piqued my interest in what this whole, you know, how the healthcare works in the United States. And then when I was getting my first master's degree, you know, I was studying software engineering, systems engineering. So in terms of where to apply my skills, I was quite open. So what I ended up getting is my first full-time job is working for a medical software startup. Actually, it was a medical devices company. It was a medical software startup arm. And I got to do um, hands-up work developing medical treatment planning systems 
uh, for use by neuro, neurosurgeons and medical physicists to treat diseases of the brain, so brain tumors and, and brain aneurysms using a novel technology that was developed in conjunction with that company by that company and the Joint Center for Radiation Therapy it was part of Dana Farber and the whole MGH um, uh, system. So there was you know radio surgery was the novel approach of treating brain tumors uh, by delivering radiation in the way that spared all the healthy tissue. So um, it was fascinating to have my dream job and do computer graphics and backbone architecture for uh, that field. It just felt so very meaningful. You know, I'm doing something with my, uh, you know, my day-to-day job that is saving people's lives, and that felt very meaningful and, and important. And so I spent there four years, you know, startup culture, just an incredible experience, great group of people, very satisfying and important work. Uh, well, it just so happened that um, during those four years, my mother was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer that was very, very advanced. So as I started to be a major caregiver to her, uh, it wasn't, you know, I felt like, well, I'm already kind of in the medical field as a caregiver, etc. I think I need to kind of deepen my mastery of my software skills, my technical skills. So I moved to a different industry and I ended up working uh, in that industry for eight years before moving to consulting. But I've because I was a caregiver for my mom, uh, kind of being at every step for the, of the way for 12 years as she battled her metastatic uh, breast cancer. I've uh, seen the healthcare system now from a whole different perspective as an insider, being side by side with a, uh, a very ill patient that's actually uh, benefited from quite a few traditional therapies and clinical trials and a number of different you know, chemos and uh, also uh, hormonal treatments, etc. So I became, I've become a patient advocate. So helping my mom and then over time helping a lot of other members of my family and then others. Um, so here I had my feet planted in the high-tech world. I was still doing product development. I was, uh, you know, a patient advocate. I continued to be, so it's more than 20 years of patient advocacy. And, um, and then I moved into technical consulting. Um, I ended up somehow moving further and further away from direct product development. But I kept looking for other ways to be engaged with the whole medical community and innovation community. So I ended up co-founding a TEDx event, an independently organized TEDx conference. So if, if uh, your listeners are familiar with TED Talks, those 18-minute talks that, that people um, see and hear around the world. So uh, we started a nonprofit seven-plus years ago here in the Boston area called Ideas in Action. And the um, main thing we do is that nonprofit, which is an education space, is we organize conferences and events. So TEDx Beacon Street is... Uh, might be familiar to people in the Boston area um, as uh, somebody who's been so passionate and interested in the space of medical technology and healthcare innovation and, and uh, kind of novel healthcare delivery methods and, and kind of systemic changes from that could improve patient experience, etc. So I've brought a number of uh, speakers to our TEDx Beacon Street stage that talked about those specific issues. In fact, a couple of years from our stage, um, the whole new movement had got launched. Uh, WEM Global is a women's health activist movement 
that is uh, actually doing the work around the world on a mission to use the power of women's activism and their desire to bring about change uh, from kind of human-centered space. Um, So I'm happy to have been able to, you know, have a small part in kind of like giving the platform for that initiative to to launch. But uh, additionally, so what I um, do a lot with Sedex Beacon Street is I coach speakers. So I've grown to really love storytelling and I've grown to understand the importance of storytelling and basically anything. So to bring it back to what I'm doing now and what my piece of the puzzle is, I see myself as an innovation catalyst. So I see my role as to find those pieces of the puzzle that need to come together to kind of address our healthcare needs or people's healthcare needs and the healthcare issues in a holistic way. So going back to my technical career, my, my last corporate gig was with Google, where I was for more than five years in a variety of different roles. And I mentioned how over time I had moved further away from hands-on product development, but I also moved further away from, in my day job, working on things that were meaningful to me. So as I was doing a lot of passion projects with TEDx Beacon Street and working with speakers and, and amazing innovators and and people who are passionate and accomplished and did work in the healthcare space. I wanted to be there full time. I wanted to do, um, uh, kind of get, go back to that work that I still remembered from my early days as being very fulfilling and, and important. So while at Google, I was looking for ways to get involved with Google's initiatives in this space, whether it was life sciences or there's some work in genomics, et, et cetera. So, um, it just uh, seemed like it was a great opportunity to move on and carve out a new project for myself going forward. So that we're going back three years now when I left Google without knowing exactly what I was going to do. But what I did know is that I wanted to combine my strong technical background experience. By that time, I already had my second master's in engineering management. So combining uh, those deep uh, roots in, in technology, also having had the experience in life sciences, medical devices, medical software, having been a patient advocate for 20 plus years, and now adding to that, having become a cancer patient myself, um, I wanted to, um, and having had all that exposure and experience with storytelling, I wanted to bring all of these aspects together and do something meaningful in the health tech space. And then so I continued to coach entrepreneurs and, and uh, business people in storytelling and delivering winning pitches at innovation competitions and consulting on business strategy. Um, but what I'm doing now at Avira Health as a chief innovation catalyst is um, we've joined forces with Evan Kerstel, who is a well-known social media influencer, kind of digital practitioner and very well known in a lot of uh, emerging technology and uh, a lot of different technology um, arenas. So we've joined forces to create Avira House, a B2B marketing consultancy uh, with a focus on social media. So we actually use social media as a platform to give a variety of people and 
and organizations and, and companies in the life sciences and health tech space that uh, exposure, uh, that voice, um, that opportunity to bring forward those big ideas. Um, I can, you know, the TED, TED Talks, the big ideas of what they're working on day to day and um, connect them with the audience that is eager to hear this information. So that's what I'm most passionate about now as an innovation catalyst is using that storytelling in this the format of social media. What I didn't also mention is I've been always a connector um, of people and ideas. So I've built communities. So DAX Beacon Street is also a huge community that we've been growing over the last seven years. So what I find is that social media is also a, a tremendous community. I've met amazing people over the last three or so years that I've been on social. Um, I love engaging with people, and I love bringing people together, and that's what we do is if you're a house. I'll probably stop yeah, at this point. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot there. Yeah, I don't know I if think, it made any sense. I think that made beautiful sense. No, I think you seamlessly wove together kind of the narrative beginning to end to allow us to understand where some of that early exposure, even as a young child and a young adult, has really landed you where you are now. I'm struggling with where to begin. So you were telling us when we first met, before we sat down to record, that you were really doing 3D mapping of the brain kind of by, excuse my ignorance, by hand. Yes, yeah. Um, so I can tell talk, us, I can tell talk us like, what was, what was the rudimentary work going on mm -hmm. and, you know, what it feels like now, maybe, you know, a couple decades later in just a position to see what's going on currently in that space. Well, absolutely. So, um, what, uh, what was so, uh, interesting, fascinating about my first full-time job in the space and being a software engineer in the, in this startup, uh, working with, uh, images of the brain. Uh, so I'll just talk a little bit about what the technology was back then in the 90s, um, and, and then I'll talk about what I had seen at HIMSS just earlier this year and how that the particular technology had evolved and what is now possible. So what we had to do 20 years ago for patients with brain cancer, we used uh, uh, CT scans, so a series of... 2D images done with a CT scan where the metal frame literally had to be bolted on the patient's head to provide that frame of reference that um, allowed for submillimeter accuracy, which was so important um, in using radiosurgery uh, to treat brain tumors. And so, for our listeners, that submillimeter accuracy is what allowed them to target the therapy in the right location of the brain, exactly, right? Exactly. Literally uh, shape the, side, the, the shape of the radiation literally around the tumor it could be actually in a very um, kind of funky shape and spare the healthy tissue. Mm -hmm. So a lot of work went into preparing for that radiosurgery. So the medical physicist or the neurosurgeon had to outline on every 2D slice of um, patient anatomy, the brain scan, uh, medical physicist would outline literally the size of the, the the shape of the tumor, but then also optic nerve and and brain stem and eyes, so all the critical structures that needed to be avoided during the delivery of high uh, levels of radiation. Um, so so that was done, and then what 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 my work was actually take those three D images with the 
outline, like literally a pencil outline done on the computer of the structures and then create a 3D representation of that that could be manipulated in, in, in space and then that was used to create a treatment plan. So, And how long did that take at that point in time when you were using it for somebody that was maybe moderately impacted? That needed that type of treatment. Oh, so the patient had to be scanned the day before with that metal frame, full, you know, bolted on the head. They had to keep it on until the images were um, processed, and then the outlining was made just in case that they had to be scanned again. And then, so they had to stay stay overnight in the hospital for the night before, and then the scanning would happen, and then the medical physicist would outline all those structures and would run out of software that would actually create all that beautiful 3D graphics. And then the surgeon would plan the, the surgery, etc. So it's only interesting to talk about what happened 20 years later because at HIMSS just earlier this year, I saw what is happening now. And the company Brain Lab, which used to be actually a competitor of ours 20 years ago, so what they do, what is done now by them and others is all of that reconstruction of uh, tumor. Uh, and critical structures and 3D is done automatically. So there's software that processes, uh, you know, CT scans. There's no need for uh, frame, metal frame, frame bolted on patients' heads. So all of that, you know, increases the, obviously, patient safety and, and comfort and also the speed of, of the procedure, etc. So I saw Operating Room of the Future uh, was uh, exhibited in the AT&T, AT&T business booth. So it was a combination of AT&T technology, like a 5G enabling technology, that, like communications, and then the brain lab that did the all the imaging, image processing, and 3D structure generation. And also they used uh, Magic Leap, which is those uh, AR goggles. Mm-hmm. So the combination of all those three technologies has just a tremendous potential. So not only are they replacing all that unnecessary now work by medical physicists and neurosurgeons and the patient involvement, but uh, with the uh, magic leap, augmented reality glasses, they are now eliminating the need for computer screens because during a procedure, you know, it's also complicated. You have to have nursing and staff and you have to have a lot of information displayed. So they now can eliminate computers and all that information can be displayed literally on the, you know, just kind of up, you know, the display on the, uh, wow. the VR, um, AR headset, augmented reality headset. It was just, I was just astonished. I knew there was tremendous progress done in, you know, in 20 years. I mean, in so many different areas. It was just amazing to be like literally in the, op- there was like a mock-up operating room, which I used, to, you know, I used to go and we used to calibrate systems in hospitals and the operating rooms, etc. And then, you know, though to be in the operating room of the future where patients still get brain tumors, obviously, right? So, um, but the technology had um, gone so so much forward with that. It was just, you know, exciting that it was specifically what I used to do 20 years ago is being done, done now this way. Um, but where it was so exciting for me in my current role is like I can now talk about it. I can blast about it on social media as part of my coverage of hymns or, um, you know, we can highlight what our clients are doing and a lot of people who are not connected with this now can know. And what is also empowering is, is that patients, potential patients or current you know, patients with these diseases could know what's available and what's mm-hmm. possible. So I love social media as an education tool. I learn a lot through social media myself, but I also love 
using this as an education tool for patients to find resources, find other people, find the communities, find, you know, information that is sometimes needed to basically, you know, save your own life if, yeah. if you're ever in, in the kind of situation like cancer or, or something like this. Um, One of the healthcare, well, we participate in the, the healthcare leader um, oh yeah, chat. absolutely. And Love they that. were talking about health literacy recently. Yeah, and just lost the other day. Yeah, and so thinking about you know forced learning, a lot of times people don't go and find the information that they need. Well, un- until either they get sick or somebody in their their family or loved one gets sick. But being on the other side, how how do you make it easy for people to understand? all of the either technology or information that is out there that is relevant Mm. for them? Yeah, so that's actually a very interesting question because as an engineer with two master's degrees and having done a lot of program management and working cross-functionally, I've always just needed to do a lot of um, research and dive into areas that I might not be so familiar with and bring myself up to speed very quickly. And then as a patient advocate, I mean, I've, you know, I dove in into all kinds of areas, you know, cancer research and clinical trials and understanding, you know, uh, minute details of different tests and etc. Catch catching preventing a few medical errors that could have occurred if I wasn't diligent and, and there. So, um, so I I know how to do it. I don't stop until I get an answer. But when I learned I had cancer myself, it was almost like I couldn't use those same muscles because, you know, my own... Like, I, I kind of, you know, I didn't completely fall apart or anything because I kind of knew, like, okay, well, now I have to, you know, deal with it and, and I have the resources that I need and I have the capability to maybe look for the answers. But you have a different, you know, it's kind of almost easier to go to bed for somebody else than it is for yourself sometimes. So it was just kind of interesting to observe that even the most educated and the most resourceful person would also need <laughs> a patient advocate themselves if they end up being in the, in, you know, in the critical kind of health situation. Yeah, but then there's also... Um, the help of community that, you know, I kind of had a lot of support and I was able to kind of turn that around and like, okay, I'll be my own advocate. I know how to do it. And then, you know, and I just keep advocating for myself. Although that's hard sometimes. So we sometimes share with other patient advocates that it could be frustrating, the system, you know, we're bumping up against a system that is not always optimal. Um, there, there's some barriers even to, you know, getting out patient information or whether that's coverage or, um, or you know, a whole variety of, of, of challenges. And of course, when somebody is dealing with a physical challenge, it just makes it so much more difficult to deal with all the other mm-hmm. um, aspects of healthcare that might not be necessarily related to just getting the, just getting the help you need, just getting the treatment. I'm sorry, what, did, what was your question about <laughs> so education, when, right? So, so, so I think what Joy was getting to is if you know, you're obviously very well poised to have been at your mother's side to be that advocate. And I think you did a beautiful job articulating, you know, the, how that doesn't always translate when you're impacted mm. yourself. What about for just lay people in the marketplace or people that maybe are lacking that same level of, you know, attunement to the healthcare mm. system or just knowledge, resources, barriers? 
you know, how do you translate, or even with some of the customers you work with now, how do you make sure that that technical or these very sophisticated systems or these ideas come across in ways that everyone can understand? Mm. So then maybe that is a job of um, somebody like myself or the function that we as marketers now take on ourselves is how do we communicate that message? Who is the uh, quote-unquote target audience that we want to reach? And what is the what are the right channels and what are the right ways and the right language to use to... Um, to communicate that, to reach people. And I think that is, uh, you know, it comes back to storytelling and, and relating and, uh, and empathy and getting beside somebody who needs help um, and kind of getting your arm around them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what have you found to be some of the more effective ways of storytelling? Has it been through a certain medium? Has it been through video or certain educational channels? Or is it literally just as you're saying, being side-by-side side with somebody and kind of walking with them as they're going through their journey. Well, absolutely. So the kind of face-to-face connection is always the strongest. We knew it in, in business, and obviously we know it in, you know, when it comes to um, interacting with patient or, or patients or trying to make impact in, in uh, any kind of idea you're trying to communicate. So that's, that's the best. Um, if you don't have that capability, ability to be somewhere um, physically present with somebody, um, then video. So, you know, we talk about the rise of health, telehealth. So that's ability to bring people together who are not physically um, in the same space. So there's some challenges to adoption of telehealth, and there's been a lot of talk about why is it not, why is it not picking up quicker, and maybe... Uh, especially in those areas that perhaps need those solutions the most, they might be just not equipped or afraid of the technology or they might not even have, uh, you know, little like internet mm-hmm. access that would be necessary for it to work. So there are barriers like that, certainly. But you asked what channels or what ways work best. Well, we've known that for a while that like live live video connecting with somebody over video is one thing, but posting content in video form, people are still drawn to that, but also audio. So podcasts, as you know, we're talking on your, on your very successful podcast right now. So that is an amazing medium that continues to grow. And, you know, we know that people are different learners. Some are, vis- you know, visual learners and auditory learners. Some people are drawn to video and some people actually process information better on audio. I love both, but I really like the audio format myself. I find that, you know, video could be a little bit distracting for somebody like myself with ADD. So uh, even when I'm talking to clients or unless it has to be video, I actually prefer to talk on the phone so I can just focus on their voice and, and and the message result. Destruction technology with a video could actually be sometimes very destructing because, you know, it's just uh, sure. connection mm-hmm. challenges and, and this and that and, and people are shuffling papers or, the, you know, the, anyway, oh, yeah. so, so I find it could be actually destructive. And then uh, I think even with text, you know, on social, obviously you can use video, you can use uh, images, etc. so that's um, important, but I think the words matter and the way you... Um, use the language 
to bring your idea forward, I think, is is important. And, you know, we used to have 140 characters on Twitter, and I was 280, but it's still a very succinct, you know, message. And I find, I find it is a different kind of challenge than, you know, writing long-form content. Uh, but I think there is an opportunity to... Uh, grab somebody's attention if you're talking about something something that's in, of interest to them, and then there's the opportunity to learn more. You know, give people resources, or you were talking about making ex- accessible, making information accessible. So that could be opportunity to kind of break it down into small, small yeah. chunks, and then give people additional resources if if uh, if they're interested. So. The companies you work with now that you consult with, that you're helping do some, help them get their message out and their big ideas. You said that, you know, the Beacon Street, the TEDx is a great platform to do it. Have you run into anyone that has a solution or something out there that maybe they've brought you an idea and it just seems like a solution for the sake of a solution? Maybe it's not solving a problem in healthcare or maybe they have a great idea. Maybe you have another example, so I'll give you another opportunity that maybe it's not just a solution that you might not see a lot of value for, but and it's just out there not really solving a problem. that They're searching for a problem, mm-hmm. right? Or have you met somebody that just their idea is so complex they're not able to break it down or even in articulating it to you, you have trouble translating what's going on? Because we've met some people and it really, like, you have to sit there and dig under all these layers to be able to connect the dots, and I think... You know, someone like you with your level of knowledge, education, and understanding in the space, you know, these people do have trouble letting them know what's going on. So do you have any examples of people you worked with where, again, they had a solution chasing a problem or maybe they were just, they didn't do a good job simplifying what they were trying to deliver to the marketplace? Um, for sure. Um, I can talk to this from a number of different perspectives. So I don't have a particular client example because we tend to not work we wouldn't take people like that on if it feels like it's just the solution looking for a problem. That's not a real-world issue that they're trying to solve. But I had come across this in my coaching clients, often for you know, like a storytelling coaching for entrepreneurs. And I can under- I can relate to some parts of it because I'm an engineer. Uh, I have two advanced engineering degrees, and I think like an engineer. Um, so when People get excited about the technology as some really cool thing they could actually put together or do, but they don't have an understanding of, uh, you know, real-world applications of it or the need out there. Then I, I've seen it a lot where, uh, as you said, there is a solution looking for a problem. And there's been some successes where actually things matched up and it ended up, you know, maybe the technology just nobody thought of what problems it could solve so there's sometimes um, situations like that but I see a lot of engineers and I can recognize it that oftentimes maybe people want to just focus on what they know and focus on technology and do you know cool uh, develop cool things and they don't have the expertise themselves but which is fine but what I see sometimes in startups they don't reach out to get that expertise or they just well, we need we need to have a product first. We need to have a minimum valuable, um, viable product, and then we'll start, you know, sh- showing it around to people, etc. So, you know, 
bring it back to patient experience, there's a lot of conversation on social. My friend um, Grace Cordovana talks about it all the time, and also people at the, you know Jen and others at the you know Savvy Co-op they talk about it all the time. Bring patients in mm-hmm. early on. Ask patients what is the problem, and not just patients. You know, providers, doctors, physicians, like. You know, there's pain points everywhere. Yeah, it's mind-blowing that we would ask the people that it might actually be for or that have to put their hands on the stuff. And I mean, it's, it's, I can see how it's, you know, it could be scary to talk to people. How do you find the right, you know, how do you tap into the right population? So the companies that figure out how to do that, I think they are the ones who um, have the, the biggest chance to succeed. Um, and... There is there are a lot of um, or right, you're like Jen Horan Jeff, one of our yeah. guests, and you actually build the community or the co-op to put those people together. Yeah, and I'm a member of, of Savvy Co-op. I, I likewise, believe, believe likewise, in, yay! I believe in the <laughs> mission. Obviously, as a you know, as a patient, as a patient advocate, and as a engineer and product developer, um, you know, if I were to do product development now. I would want to do what I did when I uh, when it was my career, you know, get stakeholders involved. You need to understand the pain points and the need and then build the solutions for that. So, but I wanted to talk about the other point you mentioned about the complexity. So what I find some oftentimes actually is that, you know, we have a call with somebody that we're just learning about the, their, their business and what they're doing and Usually, if it's a technical person, well, I would want to say usually. Sometimes, <laughs> it's a, if it's a technical person who's actually developed the product, they jump right away into telling us about all the technology. And I want to say, stop! Like, t- put it in context. Mm-hmm. Tell me what is the problem you're trying to solve, and then you know what your hypothesis is of how that could be solved and then present me with that solution not necessarily in every minute technical detail but at kind of high level and then if we need to go into details we will and that's actually interestingly that's similar to the flow of how do you uh, deliver a successful TED talk is you know that's what I coach TEDx speakers is first you present a problem well, and you have audience agreeing with you and kind of saying, yes, I see this as a problem. I agree with you. Then you present a potential solution. This is your big idea. And then you want the audience to be there with you and see, make the connection that, yes, they, they agree mm-hmm. that the problem exists. And then they see how what you're proposing could actually solve that. <clears throat> and then you can talk about, you know, more and, and p- paint the picture of the bright future Etc. And then so people, you know, you want to pe- take people along with you. So yeah, that's TED Talk, and we have durations from like three minutes to you know eighteen minutes in there. And I coach entrepreneurs to follow that kind of uh, flow when they do their pitch to investors. I mean, clearly, depending on what they're doing, they might have to hit different points. But if you're not bringing people along with you, it just it, it, the message gets lost. I mean, you say that's similar to, like, an engineering mindset, but I was an English major, and it aligns very well with just general storytelling. Right. You know, you build it, you introduce the character. What is the plot? What is their journey? And typically that involves some sort of challenge, 
or a problem and then you know it builds up and what is the solution and can we all agree like okay there's going to be some sort of resolution to the problem mm -hmm. and I think a lot of times when you're working with technology or developers of some sort if you're starting with what's the answer you're leaving a lot of people behind and really like getting people enrolled in your big idea is essentially key to being able to follow through with it really yeah absolutely i mean buy-in is important so yeah. we just talked we talked about building it for the right you know building the right things for the right mm -hmm. problems that exist and then as a startup or early stage company you mean you need funding so you need people to believe in your vision enough to invest money in it you need partners so you need to be able to clearly articulate your value proposition and and find the right partners that bring additional expertise. And then obviously when you go out to the marketplace and you offer your solution, whether that's you know, B2B or B2C, then you need to clearly articulate the value proposition there and, and why people should give you a chance. Because uh, there's so many solutions out there, even for, this, for fixing the same problem, interoperability or like patient data, there's like so many people doing that work. And then who is going to succeed? I mean, in this very complex mm -hmm. area, but who's going to succeed? So uh, I think the jury is still out. So you're bringing up the idea of bringing up a problem. And our, we like to ask everybody, if you could solve any problem in healthcare or health IT, with your magical hat. So time is not an issue, money's not an issue, resources, you have all of them. What problem would you solve and why? So on the kind of health continuum, I'm a big advocate of prevention. So the way, in my mind, the best way to solve a problem is to prevent it from ever occurring in the first place. So. I've been a big advocate of, you know, kind of healthy lifestyle and, and disease prevention and knowing, kind of knowing yourself and doing uh, everything that's in your personal power to keep yourself healthy. So, as I mentioned, I grew up seeing a lot of illness, you know, autoimmune disease and heart disease and blindness and all of that. So, I um, didn't start from the point of we're all going to be healthy and illness just sometimes happens. I started from, oh, illness is going to happen to everybody. Is there anything I can do to prevent it? Um, so I lived in a lot of, I spent a lot of years living in fear of not wanting to have that outcome, you know. And then, and then over, year, over the years, I seeked out actually a lot of older women who are living vibrant lives who are working or doing something that they, they're passionate about into their, you know, senior years. And I've seeked out those women as inspiration and as a way to pivot from, I don't want to be misdiagnosed like my mom was, you know, misdiagnosed for three years, her cancer got missed, and then she ended up battling for 12 years, very, you know, advanced the cancer. I don't want to end up like that, like that. So I pivoted to saying I want to be like these other women, like one of our TEDx speakers who started surfing at 50 and still serves in her 70s, um, or a lot of other, or you know Karen Feinstein that I've that launched that 
where I'm global movement from Orthodox Beacon Street stage. I want you know to be like those women. I want to find my passion. I want to unchain myself from things that are you know impeding my creativity or preventing me from being you know my whole heart itself to whatever I'm doing. And and that's where I want to go as opposed to I want to prevent illness. So the mindset means you know mindset is important. So obviously we don't know it's not 100% proof. We can do everything we know is right, and we could still get disease. As you know, majority of cancers still show up in people without having family history, without any genetic mutations. So, you know, there's only so much we can do, but what do we can? Let's do it. Then, step two is early detection, because I've seen it with my own eyes when devastating diseases detected early, you know, cancer could become curable if it's detected late it becomes a death sentence. So prevention, when we can, as much as we can, early diagnostics, and then, you know, if diagnostics happen, then personalized treatments. So whatever disease is detected, hopefully super early, then personalized treatment to get that addressed, so cure. Um, So I'm very interested in genetic testing, you know, genomics and precision and personalized medicine. And then, of course, uh, moving on, if, you know, disease is chronic or it couldn't be cured, and we have kind of the next level, it's therapies and, and, and drugs that can support a person with serious chronic disease. So reducing toxicity of those medications, so making them also personalized so that, you know, and, and met person's microbiome, like the gut microbiome comes into this, is a big factor now that is being investigated and a lot of work is being done in that space in terms of making therapies work better uh, depending on particular, a person's particular genomics and, and microbiome, etc. So that's, so we're kind of moving from prevention to various interventions. So if I had that magical hat that I could put on uh, then we would prevent all the disease. All, all the diseases possible will will uh, be empowered to prevent the disease. Um, if that's not possible, then early diagnosis and personalized treatment. Um, so that, and the whole goal is so that we can continue to live healthy, vibrant, uh, productive, happy lives. I like your answer and that you talked about how you sought kind of mentors in this space as part of your aspiration to be to pivot in that direction towards wellness and prevention. So I think that's very comprehensive answer to what you would wish for. You have a ton of background and experience in healthcare, health technology, software, engineering. You have a lot to keep up with in order to serve your clients now and I'm sure to continue to fuel the things you're passionate and knowledgeable about. Tell our listeners, what are you reading? How do you keep up with all this stuff? Where do you go for information in an industry that changes daily, if not hourly, sometimes? Wow. Um, So you left the most challenging question (laughs) till the the end. Um, Well, so keeping up with all the latest developments and what's happening in the field as enormous and as important as healthcare is difficult. It's it's not easy. Oh, so yeah. I uh, I don't think I ever feel that I that I'm on top of everything all the time. I there's things I don't know about until I start researching them 
for a client. Let's say if I have to write, so so let's just so my daily source of a lot of this information and news is actually social media. It wasn't until three years ago when I first started kind of getting into it, and then once I realized what an amazing uh, discovery platform it is for news and information and resources and people. Now that's my first that's my first go to. So second is Google. So I don't work there anymore. So I'm not really, um, you know, biased that way. But I really use Google, uh, you know, Google search engine mm -hmm. a lot. And I also use Google Docs um, as uh, I feel an amazing way to keep uh, all the information at my fingertips and keep, um, you know, easy references and, you know, kind of as my own documentation management. I just keep a lot of links and and you know, just bookmarks. So between the the Google search and the Chrome and my and my Google Docs, I kind of have what I uh, what I want to to keep. And then of course social media. You know, there's always something new you discover if you search a certain hashtag or um, if you know a certain person, you go to their account. You know, you can always find uh, great content there and great information. Um, so. Um, Yes, yeah, so those are so those those are kind of general things I use on a daily basis. And then if I'm doing a kind of thought leadership piece for a client, I'm writing a blog post on a specific topic. Well, that's when I actually do uh, go and do much more research again using Google a lot, but then read articles whether that's on on um, and and CBI or you know, some reputable sources of information, whether that's stat or it's, you know, like some specific, like I'm doing a piece on 3D printing in medicine right now. So I'm going to a lot of kind of authorities in that space and I'm learning the latest because I, I know some, so like at the exponential medicine, I hear, let's say, what was done in one particular field of 3D printing. And then I've read some articles about now, lungs being developed as a 3D printed organ and the work is done in the heart and, you know, kidneys were kind of the original organ printed, you know, 3D. So I kind of know things here and there, but obviously if I'm writing an article, I want to research it well. So then I do kind of research that I'm so used to, you know, deep dive reading and then kind of summarizing information and giving reader kind of an overview and opportunities to dive deeper as necessary. And so what I always try to do for myself, so having ADD, I've learned to overcome it and compensate for my inability to focus sometimes by organizing and organizing information. And, you know, I have to use extra processing to actually, you know, read and understand and make sense of things. So then uh, when I create a resource or when I write an article, I like to organize it in a way that would be easier for a per person to understand. So I try to, you know, be precise and clear and as much as, you know, as much as I can. Uh, and that's how I also, when I share resources, I try to give people context and opportunities, you know, to, to see additional information, um, etc. So going back to how I look for things so uh, reading uh, I do a lot of reading online now in terms of just you know articles and, and, and things so um, I have a ton of books in a variety of health subjects so going back again to prevention and empowerment book? oh gosh um, I don't know if I can give you a favorite um, top two top three well so um, I like the Celestine Prophecy 
Oh my gosh. So that's going back decades in this whole new age. Yeah. I read that. Yeah. Well, it took me back to my travels in Peru. I traveled in Peru and Machu Picchu, you know, some years ago. And then so it really took me back there. But what I liked, I mean, it's kind of like metaphysical and it's like new agey. But, you know, we talk about prevention and personal empowerment. And there was a lot of that in that book. So it's kind of like a new way of thinking. And, you know, it's anyway, so. Just it's wanted to ch- just wanted that. to challenge people by throwing that one in. That one is a really interesting one. One I thought of like when I read that, I remember thinking it was like you know, there's sort of a reason for everything in your life, right? You're mm-hmm. gonna meet somebody, and there's a purpose for it. Yeah, so there are no coincidences. It yeah, says right, and so it makes you a little bit more mindful of who am I around, who am I surrounded by, what is it that I can learn from, or what can I contribute, mm. and sort of connect, make kind of. I think leads you to connecting some dots within your own life mm-hmm. that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah, that, that's an interesting suggestion. So I maybe I'll, I'll maybe I'll stop there because uh, you okay. know once the interview is over, I'm going to remember the exact list of the books I should have said. <laughs> but right now, I, I that's all right. And I, a lot <laughs> of people say that, or they say, "One second, let me grab my phone, or let me look on my bookshelf." And yeah. So. If people want to find you, they want to know more about the company and what you're doing now, or they want to connect on social, uh, what are your handles? What's your, where can people find you? Oh, absolutely. So probably the, the best way is on Twitter at Irma Raste. I had to shorten my name in half. So I-R-M-A-R-A-S-T-E, Irma Raste on Twitter. Also, I'm very easy to find it on LinkedIn. And our um, company website is evira.health or virahealth.com, either way, we'll get you there. Um, so uh, I'd be very um, curious to meet new people and learn more about them. I just, I love people. I love learning about what makes them tick and what they do. And uh, I can never get enough of learning about uh, what people are doing in healthcare and health tech. So I'm always open to uh, having a conversation. Wonderful. Well, thank you for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you so very much. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.